0: if you're looking at sex look at the ecology where sex is happening sex is never about some mystical way men and women naturally are is what we see as we dig further into data and look at newer science about sexuality sex is always about uh the intersection of biology and culture of desire and culture of the clitoris and culture of the penis and culture uh sex happens in an ecology and the more egalitarian the ecology the more pleasurable the sex is for everyone.
1: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights
2: well welcome to our latest edition of homegrown humans with neurohacker collective i am super stoked to welcome dr wednesday martin uh, the New York Times, number one bestselling author of Primates of Park Avenue, her most recent book, Untrue, about uh, basically ripping the cover off women's sexuality and infidelity. She has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and pretty much every other major publication you can think of and has been the host of a successful podcast of her own. Um, And um, super psyched to have you here Wednesday and happy to jump in.
0: Thank you so much for having me on, Jamie. Looking forward to talking to you and connecting with your listeners. Thanks.
2: Yeah, so so it, it occurred to me uh, this morning that both you and I have written what what I might call permission books. Uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book called Stealing Fire, which, was, which came out six months before Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. It was also speaking of Burning Man culture, transformational culture, all of these things, and fundamentally the role of ecstatic peak states in otherwise healthy, non-deviant lifestyles right? right and and it, and it, and it had right it had a very strong reception and, and and even though that wasn't the thesis what it turned out to be in real life was a bunch of people giving their book to stodgy spouses or bosses or you know founding partners or parents and going see see you know like like validation because science right yeah and-
0: it's so important your point about validation because science because I think what we do is a little different. You know, It's I always say, it's one thing to tell stepmothers who are struggling or women in a mean girl culture, a mean girl mom culture, or women who struggle with monogamy. I always say, it's one thing to just tell them, oh, it's okay, it's okay that you feel that way. Um, Okay, but when you give people permission with the data, with the data that say, you know, stepmothers have the hardest role of the family system, or with the data that say, you know, actual real stuff about maternal behavior and intersexual competition, or data that say, like worldwide ethnographic data about the prevalence of monogamy versus non-monogamy. Then you've given people permission on a deeper level with some substance to it. And I think you and I are both really about kind of setting people free to feel more comfortable with themselves with data, as opposed to just affirmations, um, or mm-hmm. it's okay, or you be you. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I see I see the connection between our projects there.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we've also got lots of overlapping friends and colleagues, everyone from Chris Ryan to Helen Fisher to, you know, folks in that kind of evolutionary psychology, biology Sexuality yeah. space, Nicole Kelsey, yeah. um, a bunch of a bunch of folks. And so I'm super curious on, on that theme of you know permission books, right? How what was your experience having researched and then written Untrue? And then it kind of dropping into and in, in, in my sense that you know there was somewhere a continuum of where Untrue lands with Esther Perel's work right as well as sex at dawn you know and as, as well as the kind of burgeoning non-conventional or non-traditional relationship space right so so what was your experience from 2018 doing the research i'm imagining wood shedding kind of you're you're your solitary author doing your thing you know yeah. speaking with subjects but then it goes out into the world it lands and then it takes on a life of its own what was that like for you and what did you notice
0: it's so interesting i mean first of all i just want to underscore that you and i look at cultures right so and by the way, I've always wanted to go to Burning Man. I've never gone. Um, it's such a specific kind of culture. And I know that there are sort of microcultures within Burning Man. Um, but uh, I I love that you wrote about it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's such an important niche to look at in terms of how people form identity and what can mm-hmm. happen uh, with sexuality in these kind of spaces where you create an ecology where there's less stigma. Um, so uh, yeah, you and I like to write about culture. So obviously, when I wrote Primates of Park Avenue, I was writing about a very specific culture, uh, wealthy mothers of young children preschool age children on the upper east side of manhattan and that was a very specific culture and then when i wrote on True, i found myself uh in yet another uh culture which was the culture of sex positivity sometimes or sometimes it would be the culture of a specific sex party um sometimes i was immersing myself in the data about in the worldwide ethnographic data about female sexuality right so i would interview somebody like Brooke Skelza who's the world's leading expert on the Himba right and the Himba uh, who live in northern namibia uh have the highest rates of extra pair paternity of any small scale society anywhere meaning the Himba And is it is
2: it, come- is it known or is this cuckoldry
0: Oh it's known it's and it's open um so it's an it's an openly accepted fact uh, among the Himba that approximately one in three pregnancies of a married Himba woman um, is a pregnancy with her boyfriend versus her husband. So there's a very high rate of extra pair paternity and a very high rate of tolerance for it, and it's an accepted fact. Uh, So I was um, immersing myself in different cultural beliefs and traditions Uh, around what we might call fidelity, a term I hate, or monogamy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was such a shock, really, to go from being sort of a stealth social scientist, socialite on the upper east side, uh, to going into uh, these cultures and studying sex permission, Mm -hmm. um, uh, prohibition. Uh, you know, rates of um, sexual activity, rates of exclusivity versus extra pair involvement. Um, And it was kind of a shock to the system, but it was such a relief. I remember my husband saying, oh, my God, this is so much more fun than the last book when I was writing on True. Um, (laughs) because, Because really, I had been studying women who were highly anxious, um, who were experiencing a lot of extra, uh, a lot of intrasexual competition, um, whose lives were really fueled by anxiety and ambition on behalf of their children. I went from that to what you might call more ecstatic contexts or just day-to-day lives uh, where there was less constraint. Um, and so it was an amazing process. And Untrue was kind of a quieter book uh, than Primates of Park Avenue. Primates of Park Avenue made a huge splash and got a lot of attention, and it was sort of like a top-down phenomenon. It was Mm -hmm. almost like Primates of Park Avenue was imposed on people. Whereas Untrue, being a book about women and non-monogamy or female non-monogamy across cultures and species, it is a stigmatized topic. It didn't get covered as much, but what was fascinating was watching it find this organic audience and watching people find it and you know the passion and you're aware of this the passion that people feel when you give them permission when you validate their life experiences and their feelings with data with science um is so is so incredibly powerful um so it was so gratifying to enter into these other cultures to be welcomed in you know to be welcomed into a secret sex party that's an act of trust Mm -hmm. to be welcomed into a a community like open love new york uh right which is Mm -hmm. a support system and and social uh opportunity like a, a a place where poly and open people across the country do open love uh, meetings and Mm -hmm. stuff, to be welcomed into these cultures, uh, to talk to all these anthropologists and experts and primatologists, uh, and to talk to real women, uh, people who identified as women, about their sex lives, it was such a privilege and a thrill. And then it was such a privilege and a thrill to watch people slowly find uh, the book in their own way, as opposed Mm. to what happened with Primates of Park Avenue. It's just been so gratifying to watch. You Mm. know how it is as a writer, you know, people reach out to you and they literally say, oh my God, you changed my life. What a privilege is that? What a privilege. I get a lot of women... (laughs) Giving me credit saying like you inspired me to get a divorce or you inspired me to what and you know I'm not always sure how I feel about that but I think that you and I share uh we're in a similar position where we have the privilege of changing people's thinking and so changing their lives and what an honor is that right sorry did I answer your question
2: well, then this is great because because all we're doing is kind of sowing the seeds to pick up certain threads. So you even talked about um, the Himba, right? And you talked about yes. extramarital extra lovers and mates. And now yes. this is going to get deep nerd anthropology for a second. Well, let's right? go because deep
0: nerd about extra pair uh, paternity among the Himba. Yeah,
2: because because this reminds me of Jared Diamond's Why Is Sex Fun, which is actually not nearly as fun a book as you would think with a title like that. But but nonetheless, he's talking about hey mating strategies and how but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of interested in kind of laying over our conversation on Chris's sex at dawn, pros and cons of the thesis and the modeling, anthropological critique, et cetera. But, but basically just the idea that women might have in Paleolithic times had lovers on the side but because it was nice to have fundamentally someone else who might be a better hunter who might share with her her and her children them you know the kind of just the idea of hedging one's bets which is yeah, you know,
0: hedging. well you know women have always and female hominins have always run a social calculus and i might suggest that your readers uh instead of jared diamond you know maybe read sarah hurdy um mm-hmm. who is a lot more footnotes a lot more mm. depth Um, I really appreciate how Jared Diamond has crossed certain ideas into the mainstream, but I think uh, in terms of some real uh, rigor about these ideas and going much deeper and challenging mainstream ideas about sexual selection, um, and correcting uh, confirmation bias in sexual selection theory, I would really recommend Sarah Hurdy's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just about, ever, wasn't ever just about choosing one great guy and locking him down. That was never the strategy. Um, if that were the strategy, that had been the social and sexual strategy uh, for most of our evolutionary prehistory, women would not have a forward-faced, richly enervated clitoris. Um, and women would not struggle in the aggregate more than men do in exclu- sexually exclusive cohabiting relationships.
2: Well, exactly. Let, let, let me get to that because I, I wanted to set sure. up. Sure. but I love strategy. getting into
0: the nerd. Oh, and let me yeah, just yeah. say, because you asked about the HIMBA, Jamie, mm-hmm. uh, there's this fantastic anthropologist named Brooke Skelza Um, And she's probably, you know, one of the world's leading experts on the Himba. And she went there and um, just studied what happens with female reproductive success among the Himba. Um, And uh, she found that uh, it's a much more subtle finding than this, but she found that it might actually uh, work against women's reproductive sex. Uh, success to limit themselves to one partner, uh, which is, you know, uh, a finding uh, that would bear out much of the revisiting of very dated sexual selection theory uh, Mm -hmm. that finds that uh, females of almost all species, like males, uh, benefit from mating multiply, Um, Mm. as opposed to this, we, we projected onto females this strategy of locking down an alpha male. Uh, we we know uh, that even the idea of the alpha male uh, is is uh, really problematic when you look at the actual science of male uh, sexual and social strategies uh, mm-hmm. across uh, species and uh, and across cultures. I mm. really wish we would stop using that term in science because alpha males and beta males. This is just a thing um that people really invested in hierarchical um people really sort of indoctrinated into hierarchical thinking are people highly invested in this idea of alpha males and beta males or alpha females and beta females mm-hmm. and um it really is not borne out in the science. Mm-hmm. What we see is that people the that the <laughs> that the males that we call alpha males uh are actually what they're best at isn't chest feeding and impregnating. Uh, what they're best at um, is coalition building, baby holding, negotiation, soothing people, and compassion, which are all. But
2: that's a reclassification of what people would think of as an alpha male. Is that correct? You're not. You're not saying exactly
0: when you look at actual successful males across species um, and even among humans. Uh, what scientists are finding. And Franz Deval's work is really good on this. And so is, yeah. Amy, so is Amy Parrish's work. Um, absolutely incredible. And, you know, uh, so alpha males actually, what we call alpha males, actually most of their social strategies have to do with coalition building have to do with cooperation have to do with reducing conflict um, have to do with literally in many species holding babies and soothing conspecifics and being empathic and compassionate so that needs to enter into the conversation so does the whole idea that this idea of the alpha male is based on some uh literature some lupine research uh research on wolves and the Man who coined the scientist who coined the term alpha male, alpha male said, I was wrong. um, there aren't there's not an alpha structure among wolves. Um, the alphas are actually the parents. um and it's about parenting behavior, not about fighting behavior. Um, and so I think we really need to revisit this idea of the alpha male. And I took us on a little bit into a little bit of a cul de sac here, but I think it's one of the most important places to start thinking about received notions about sexual selection theory mm-hmm. and creating an opportunity for people to look at the literature that's emerged in the last half century, but has not really crossed over yeah. um, about female and male sexual and reproductive strategies and how uh, that impacts uh social behavior.
2: No exactly and just just to go meta on your comment right then uh, you, you were mentioning sort of dated and outdated evolutionary theory mm-hmm. and then you were suggesting counter
0: selection theory
2: sexual selection theory and, and the whole evolutionary bio- biological shitshow, which we will get into as far as the public sphere, the Jordan Petersons and the incels of the world and everybody having a dog in this fight and then using what we could at first you sort of rather nicely, you know, but potentially innocently said, isn't it nice that we're providing permission via scientific evidence, right? But the reality is, is this is a hotly contested space and Rorschach Blotty is all get out right in the sense of what people project into evolutionary biology as this is the way it is, or this is the way we get to be, right? So everybody's interpreting it through their presentist lens and and, and, and the dogs they have in the well, fight. Well, a
0: lot of people, when it crosses over into the mainstream, it's usually not evolutionary biology. It's usually evolutionary psychology, which to me is not much of a science.
2: Yeah, um, much much more is- plastic and corruptible.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I really like you framing it that way. Thank you for that, because I think what happens with evolutionary psychology and one of the reasons that uh, people seize on it so much in the mainstream and that it appeals so much to the layperson is that a lot of evolutionary psychology is these just so stories uh, that are kind of this circuit of things are the way they are because things are the way they used to be, which is the way they should be.
2: And any effort to fight it is silly or foolish or or woke or whatever the pejorative. Yeah.
0: And and what happens is they're starting with the culturally, a very weird culturally and historically specific wrinkle in the long arc of human evolution. For example, the dyad, right? Mm -hmm. Like I like to say that through the lens of evolutionary biology and uh, cultural anthropology, Uh, a monogamous dyad is a a kink for exclusivity. Um, Because if you look at the long arc of human sexual and social behaviors and hominin sexual and social behaviors, uh, what you see is that uh, cooperative breeding really was the soup that we were cooked in. We had this 12,000 to 10,000 years ago, our friend Helen Fisher tells us we had this. Uh, shift right toward agriculture the worst thing that ever happened to women she says i i uh, concur with my friend helen there and um so this thing that's only 10 to 12,000 years old this idea that when i get into this a lot and aren't true this idea that women are men's property uh this idea that because men have more upper body strength uh they should rule the world this idea that women should be indoors uh, at the hearth and men should be outside Uh, this idea that a dyad is an ideal way to raise offspring we know it's not we know it's hard as fuck. it's impossible because it goes against the groove in our head that we really do need lots of people to help us raise our children all these weird culturally and historically specific new ideas evolutionary psychology uh often tends to take an idea like that and say yeah that because well that's how it was in caveman times and that's the way because that's the way it should be uh because that's the real natural way so uh, too often when evolutionary psychology crosses over um it it's in this circuit of i call it a circuit of a logic um and it, it, you know too often it is just propping up the way things are now. Oh, men like women in high heels because it creates this uh, like appearance of lordosis and it's sexy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's sexy here in one specific culture where women um, are disempowered relative to men across many metrics. Uh, but you know. yeah, it's, it's
2: it's sort of the reverse. It's 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 propter hoc ergo post hoc, right? Is because yeah, because it, yes, because it exactly. used to be right. And
0: it's also just looking at one specific culture often and uh, drawing conclusions from one specific culture and one specific weird set of cultural practices, and then trying to naturalize it mm-hmm. and tag it onto something that happened in our past. So yeah, mm-hmm. evolutionary psychology. Uh, I prefer. It
2: comes with be- some asterisks. <laughs> For yeah. sure, that's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, so again, to just to stay on the commentary of your comments, right? Which is you're saying, hey, there's some, there's kind of an established body of what almost passes as commonsensical folk wisdom on sexual selectivity. Most of it, and 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 the counters, all, with the exception of uh, Franz Vandewall, right? Um, you everybody you've mentioned has been a female researcher. So Vanduor, there's the
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Right. And, and, and he's, he's the Dutch primatologist who's done all kinds of fascinating work in that field. Um, so my sense is you're also there, there's also some element of gender looking at gender, right. And, yeah. and, and, and what's the capacities. And, and, uh, do you know, David bus at UT Austin? Are you yes, familiar? I'm
0: very aware of David's work.
2: Yeah. So, so I listen, listening to uh, his podcast with our buddy, Andrew Huberman, uh, the Stanford neuroscientist, um, I was just laughing to hear his to hear his statements and then to wonder what you think right so just to go back to the original options and i want to give you a third to define for yourself but the 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 old school one was that dual mating strategy right that women are hedging their bets via sexual favors to, to basically sort of increase their survival fitness and that of their offspring and then bus was arguing that actually he's in favor more of a mate switching um, strategy because his, at least the research he cited was that 70% of women having extramarital affairs or outside the pair bond affairs are actually falling in love with and and developing deep feelings of attachment to these partners. So he he has the idea of mate switching, that fundamentally these are can opener affairs and I'm going to jump to the other guy if he's a better bet which which to me has an echo of what Helen has said, where she says there's no such thing as casual sex just because of the neurochemical priming and pair attachment that happens in you know, orgasm and or extended intimacy. So if you've got a choice between dual mating strategy, mate switching strategy, or fill in the blank and define your own, what do you think is the most prominent driver? Because you've expressed women seeking variety, seeking novelty, seeking pleasure. There's a whole host of additional things that you've been advancing and, and advocating for. What would be the, if there is such a thing as a singular category or hypothesis, how would you describe women's sexuality? In light of those other two?
0: First of all, the view from anthropology, as you know, and maybe many of your listeners already know, is that, and I like to say this over and over, I'm like a broken record about it. We evolved as extremely flexible sexual and social strategists, and it may well be the reason that we're here and, you know, Australopithecus afarensis bit the dust. Um, I might have the name wrong. There's so much uh, new, exciting research about the homo lineage and um, but, uh, and precursors, ancestors. Uh, but my basic point is the only consistent thing about human sexual strategies and uh, sexual strategies in the homo lineage, the only consistent thing is the inconsistency. The only thing set in stone is the flexibility thereof. What we see when we look at the worldwide ethnographic data is that women and men alike uh, can thrive in many different ecologies and relationship containers. Many different sexual and social strategies work for us. So we see women doing, okay, uh, with polygyny, right, when a man has several wives. Um, we see women doing uh, well with polyandry, uh, which is when a woman has more than one husband or a partner, as we see in some uh, parts of China, Tibet. Uh, we see um, some women thriving in intentional sex positive communities, in, you know, Brooklyn, say, uh, we see women finding ways to thrive or do well or get by in contexts where there are very uh, where heterosexual women having strategies where there are very high rates of male incarceration. We see women developing sexual and social strategies around that. Uh, We see women doing well and men doing well being asexual. Uh, We see people doing well in a polycule or in a monogamous dyad. So my first point is there's no one way, because we evolved to be uh, flexible sexual and social strategists. That's why I always say to people, your kink is not weird. Your kink is the watermark of the tendencies that got us here as a species. Your kink, for example, uh you know, if you like feet, if you like being peed on, uh whatever it is that your kink is, um if you like being cucked as some people like to play with this idea of the coupled lifestyle um if you like being slapped, if you like being tied up, your kink is really the trace of what got us here as a species, which is that, we evolved to like many different things and strive and, excuse me, to do well or even to thrive uh, in many different ecologies, Mm -hmm. including relationship ecologies. That's the first Mm -hmm. thing I'll say. As for a dual mating strategy or, um, you know, the dyad or, you know, what we know is that this nonsense about the caveman bringing back the food for the woman and the baby is so much uh, retrospective uh, uh, c- conjecture and hypothesis based on mm. the weird way that things are now. And mm. to be clear, to be clear, the weird way things are now is a departure uh, mm. from the long arc of egalitarian social mm. strategies. So here's what I think: I think that women are wired to seek out pleasure, and mm. That includes I throw my hat in with the people who the scientists who have corrected confirmation bias and sexual selection theory for the last forty or fifty years, starting with Sarah Hurdy. Uh, When she came up with this idea that no women, females of most species aren't just trying to get a male to provision them, although that's one thing they're trying to do. Uh, They're um, just trying to up their odds of reproductive success. She looked at Langer's, the Langer's of Abu was her first big uh, contribution to evolutionary theory. And she saw that females were mating with males who came in and killed their babies, right? With infanticidal males, why would they do that? Um, why would the males kill the babies, and why would the females? Wait, that th- this
2: was it? in human populations or primate populations?
0: This was in among um, uh, langurs in Abu, India, where she did some of her early field work, and that's how she came up with the infanticide hypothesis, uh, which is largely accepted now, although some people want to revisit it. Uh, that female sexual strategies among uh non-human primates um include uh just always having counter strategy to male uh violence coercion and control so the males were coming in seeing that a female was capable of reproducing uh because she had there was this offspring and so the male langer would kill the offspring um you know usually by biting it or dashing its head on Mm. something and um then she would um because she was no longer breastfeeding right she no longer lactating she would go into estrus and then he could mate with her and sire his own offspring right so that is and there's some speculation that it's so infanticide is so prevalent among male infanticide is so prevalent among so many mammal species and non-human primates that it would be a stretch to think that it wasn't part of our lineage as well. Mm-hmm. So so what was the an- antidote to that? Herdy noticed that these uh, langurs and uh, other primates, female primates, were really putting themselves at incredible risk to, to have sex uh, with males lower in the dominance hierarchy, uh, males from other troops. They were literally risking their lives sometimes to have sex with novel males. And so Herdy's theory is basically that female promiscuity among non-human female primates, and I would argue among human women that promiscuity is pragmatic, female promiscuity is pragmatic, that Um, those infanticidal males would never, ever kill the offspring of a female with whom they had copulated even once. Mm -hmm. Now, were the the females saying, oh, let me do this because I want to have a baby that doesn't get killed? Absolutely not. They're doing it because it feels good.
2: Well I was about to ask you that because because there's the, there's the evolutionary adaptive you know like propagation of gene you know arguments and then you've also I think made a quite a strong case with everything from the the discovery of the fully anatomical clitoris to women seeking novelty decrease in um pair bonded sexual satisfaction in a fairly short period for women one to
0: four years as opposed we're, to nine to twelve years for men yes. yeah yeah
2: men are just happy to keep on trucking <laughs> you know so 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 you've got like so so go ahead and link these two together for us one sure. is the psychological um, psychosexual satisfaction of an individual and the other is propagation of genetics over time.
0: Right. So when people say, oh, women just go off sex, they're, they're less sexual. Um, and people talk about, oh, in the marriage, you know, he wants to keep having sex and she's just not interested. Um, I wanted to get to the evolutionary underpinnings of that, um, Mm -hmm. to the biological and social underpinnings of that. And what we know is that, um, go, just sort of bracket for a minute, this idea that female promiscuity is pragmatic. Think about those langurs mating multiply. Um, and let's talk about just for a second, the other benefits that um, everyone, every non-human primate, every female mammal, um, including human females, let's just really quickly hit on the benefits that they get from mating multiply. Because we were told for years only males Mate, multiply because they have all this abundant sperm, and females are just all choosy and coy because they have one precious egg. And that that somehow that somehow gamete production determines uh, sexual behavior. Absolutely not. We know now that that's just dated, sort of old think, and it's been revisited. And what we know now is that it's not about one sperm and one egg. it's it's about producing a lot of sperm so that you can fertilize one egg, okay? So sperm are not cheap. Um, It's costly for males of most species to produce sperm, okay? So that's the first thing. Second of all, um, when a female mates multiply, what are the benefits she's getting? Well, she's upping the likelihood of heterozygosity, which is the name of the game in heterosexual um reproduction, which is made-
2: richer gene genetic material.
0: Right. Enough of a genetic dissimilarity that you're going to have a robust pregnancy and a robust offspring. Right. So ha- she's upping her chances of heterozygosity. If she's mating with one male, uh, what are the chances? Maybe he's not, they're not heterozygous. Uh so mate with many and you'll up your chances of heterozygosity, just thus upping your chances of a robust pregnancy and a robust offspring. Second thing, upping your chances of uh, not just the like the genetic thing that's so important, but upping your chances of um, just getting high quality sperm. What if you're mating with one male and he has low sperm motility? What if you're mating with one male and he's uh, infertile, right? There goes your reproductive success. Boo uh, his, because that's the name of the game, having an offspring that survives to the age of reproduction and reproduces themselves. Uh, what are the other benefits that you're getting? Um, well, you could uh, indeed get more males to provision you.
2: But, but to be right? clear, very, very few of these so far. I mean, you're getting into provisioning now that I get into real time. I'm self aware of my choices and strategies, but everything you've set up until then is predominantly, largely unconscious intergenerational behavioral nudges versus self-aware choice-making, wouldn't you say?
0: And really, what does it matter, right? When we're talking about promiscuity, a very stigmatized social behavior and trying to get at the underpinnings, for me as a comparativist, I have to sort of bring all the strands together. So, but you make this good point to get back to, which is women and females of other species aren't saying, wow, let me have sex with multiple guys Uh, Because then, to your point, uh, what you're saying, because then I'll get really good uh, sperm. I have a better chance of high-quality sperm. I have a better chance of heterozygosity. Uh, I have a better chance of warding off infanticidal uh, males in other Mm. species. Uh, Absolutely, that's not what's going on. Absolutely, uh, females across species are doing it because it feels really good. And so this is where we get back to uh, the wonderful mashup right, of the biological underpinnings of sex and the social benefits and social dangers of it. And I like to say that female sexuality happens at the intersection of biology and ecology, that female sexuality for for the, the human female sexuality uh, happens at the crossroads of the clitoris and the culture. Um, so I was talking about the benefits to females of mating multiply, something which we just totally missed for years, because for years we were focused on males benefit from mating multiply and females don't. But we see, we do know that all kinds of advantages are conferred to females who mate multiply if they're not going to get murdered for doing
2: it. But but you did just, you just introduced the notion of female pleasure, correct? That, that yes, model, right. right? But then then what about that study that I just saw a stack ranking and it was basically all sort of gender, you know, obvious gender combinations. And it was basically that gay men got off the most, then straight men, then lesbians, then straight women. They were the bottom of the pile as far as like sexual, reliable sexual satisfaction.
0: This is a good pivot. Let me just briefly talk about why it's not advantageous for males of all species to mate multiply. Um, yeah, yeah. and then let's get to that let's get to the orgasm gap which has everything to do with the clitoris we always think oh males can pump and dump and that's awesome for them uh, but now the newer science is showing us wait what no that is one of those fantasy projections based on our current ecology right where men do have more power and more sexual privilege than women in the aggregate still so what are the benefits to males of pumping and dumping, well, it's hard to find a lot of them,
2: well, well and to, find- just to be clear when you say pumping and dumping, do you mean quick sex and ejaculation? and exactly.
0: then okay. mating multiply okay as we call it as you know, we call it in science. I'm sorry, it's not a sexy term, is it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but pumping and dumping isn't very sexy either, but so we're we're like oh males they have all this randy sperm no we already know that it's energetically costly to produce it and we're not talking about one sperm in one egg we're talking about literally billions of sperm to fertilize one egg and there's this phenomenon called sperm depletion okay so first of all a guy who's doing all that is depleting his sperm uh second of all a guy a, a male of any species including a human male who does that what are the chances that you have if you're heterosexual and you're having sex with all these females what are the chances uh, unless she's in estrus and you can see, but let's talk about humans. What are the chances that you're going to hit a woman when she's fertile? Mm-hmm. They're not that great.
2: Yeah, one in ten, something like that. I mean, wow. and
0: if you're having sex with many females, uh, what are the chances that you're going to like? Well, why not just stick around and get her when she's ovulating? Sorry to talk this way, but this is evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Now. What are the chances, we know there are very high rates of spontaneous miscarriage across mammal species in some species as high as 40 to 50%. And I'm putting humans there, these little these spontaneous miscarriages that happen early on. So what are the chances that you're like running around having sex with all these human females, <laughs> you're having sex with women, you get them at the right time in the menstrual cycle. Now, what are the chances that that pregnancy is going to hold, right? After spontaneous miscarriage, what are the chances? God forbid, but it's a normal thing that happens, unfortunately, in our reproductive careers. Now, what are the chances that you're gonna be around for that period of heightened fertility right after spontaneous miscarriage? Well, if you're running around, you're not gonna be there for that period. What are the chances in a species that does well with biparental care, um, like the human species, since we ripped ourselves out of larger uh, sort of of communal context for childbearing. What are the chances uh, that that baby's going to do well if you're not there uh, to help out? Not as good, right? Although props to single moms. I'm talking evolutionary biology right now, and humans can make many things work. But anyway, What I'm trying to say is there has been a shift in thinking in evolutionary biology, specifically in sexual selection theory over the last 50 years, but people just haven't really heard about it. But there has been the shift toward an understanding that mating multiply is not such a great strategy for males of many species. And mating multiply is a pretty great strategy for females of many mammal species. Okay? Okay. Now let's talk about the pleasure gap, some people call it, the orgasm gap, some people call it. Uh, the sex researcher Debbie Herbenick links it to what she calls the everything gap. All right.
2: The everything gap.
0: <laughs> because let's talk about the role of ecology, right? Women did evolve to seek out variety and novelty and adventure. And the clitoris is the sort of trace of that. The living, breathing, erectile tissue uh that shows us uh, how things used to be and how things can be in ecologies where female sexuality isn't constrained. Remember what I said, female sexuality happens at the confluence of the clitoris and the culture. You can put a woman in uh, somewhere, you can, a Dogon woman's uh, sexuality is very constrained. The Dogon people live in the Bandigaris Department in in Mali. And uh, a, a Dogon woman repairs to a menstrual hut Every month, uh, it's compulsory. Uh, she's cauterized, and her sexuality is uh, coerced and constrained, and uh, she is, um, and her sexuality is consequently muted. Then you can look at the Himba uh, that we mentioned early, or these nomadic pastoralists, where female sexuality is relatively unconstrained to such an extent. In 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 this in the Dogon uh, country, uh, a woman's in a menstrual hut so that men can keep track of her uh, menstrual cycle and determine whether a baby is theirs or not. Whereas among the Himba, uh, women are, you know, nobody looks, uh, nobody gives it a second thought that a woman has a lover. And for reasons that I get into and untrue and that uh, Brooke Skelza outlines in her own work with the Himba, Uh, It's very advantageous to males to tolerate uh, their wives, quote, infidelity, unquote. So everything is about ecology and context. We live in an ecology where there, sometimes people say, what is patriarchy? What even is it? Let's be very clear that when we say the word patriarchy, what we're talking about is a context, a cultural context, a social context. Where uh, that is patrilineal, Mm -hmm. right? There are patrilineal naming practices, there are patrilineal inheritance practices, or a history, a relatively recent history of patrilineality. And there is also uh, the practice of, or the until recently practice of patrilocality, which is women leaving their kin and going to live with a man, okay? So we when we say patriarchy, now now patrilineality and patrilocality have an impact. So
2: and, and, and just to be clear, because typically these days in popular discourse, patriarchy is almost synonymous with misogyny. And are you differentiating? You're taking an anthropological definition and distinction of the structures, the social yeah. structures of patriarchy as distinct from how women are held treated liberated or not?
0: Uh, I think that they're very interwoven, and I was just going to link them, which is, I was going to say, so when you have patrilineal, patrilocal practices, what we see from the worldwide ethnographic data is that those are ways for men to, they do consolidate power uh, relative to women. Now, how does this play out? To me, a, a patriarchy is any patrilineal, patrilocal culture or one that was until recently where there are descriptively verifiable meaningful differences on metrics such as wage uh female meaningful female labor force participation i don't mean how many women are allowed to be maids and hairdressers in the u.s that would mean how many women are fortune 100 ceos meaningful levels of female political participation and i'm not talking about just a woman being vice president i'm not talking about a woman being the treasurer of the pta these are important things too i'm talking about a woman being the most powerful man in in the country right okay and uh where there are meaningful gaps uh in education right and women have closed that gap but so that's what A patriarchy really is. It is a context where there were patrilineal inheritance and naming practices, where there are patrilocal uh, practices of living, and where those practices resulted in descriptively verifiable discrepancies in meaningful metrics of privilege like meaningful labor force participation, meaningful political participation, and uh, meaningful educational attainment. So that's what I mean when I say a patriarchy, all right? For, in terms of anthropology. Now, what happens to female orgasm in a context uh where where women are just valued less? And you we could go on and on about how Me Too oppressed men and ruined their lives, and we could go on and on about uh feminism and what you know that it's allegedly bad for men and we can go on and on about these things that uh a disturbing number of people in my mind tend to say uh about feminism uh but they did you just
2: say a disturbing number of people say about those things
0: Mm, a disturbing number of people uh to me personally you know believe these things um what we can say uh to those people, is that we just look at the data, right? And we see that in the United, that the United States, among two hundred countries, uh, as recently as a few years ago, ranked something like one hundredth out of two hundred countries for rates of meaningful female labor force and political participation. That's a metric of female power. Don't tell me that women have all the power when we can look at the data that and that women are ruining. you know when we can look at the data which tells us uh, the real uh, demographic situation uh, of women in this country relative to men. okay, in a country where men outearn women and uh, uh, outpower women, really, in terms of meaningful political participation. What do you think is going to be privileged when we're privileged when we're privileging men, what's going to be privileged, male orgasm or female orgasm?
2: Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, this, this is taking an interesting turn and it's, so so
0: the orgasm gap Mm -hmm. is all about the gap between men and women in terms of wages and meaningful labor force participation. The orgasm gap is all about the meaningful gap between men and women in terms of meaningful political participation. These things are all linked. Wage gap, political power gap, Mm -hmm. orgasm gap. In any ecology, uh, where male uh, experiences privilege, where men out earn women, where men out uh, power women, oh, you know, have more power than women politically, uh, you're gonna see that male orgasm and male pleasure are privileged. And that's why we have an orgasm gap. There's one study that showed that for every uh, orgasm that a heterosexual woman had in a partnered uh, situation, partnered sexual situation, uh, the heterosexual man had three. And people mm. might say, oh, well, that's because female orgasm is more elusive, or it's more difficult, or it's uh, whatever. No, we know in studies that when masturbating, women get off as quickly as men. Yeah, so yeah exactly. Is, they even need the, orgasm- the 15 yeah. to 20
2: minutes, right? They, they, if yes, they know exactly. their button, they can ring their yeah. bell.
0: Some people say, uh, you know, some people say Uh, women need 20 minutes uh, to get off from just intercourse alone and some people say uh, that it's something like 12 some studies have shown that it's more like 12 minutes uh whatever it is uh you know when now we're talking about intercourse let's talk about how that's part of men out earning women and men outpowering women politically uh yeah 100% one hundred percent, it's linked to that because we define sex as intercourse. What's the so most? This, this is clitoris.
2: This is clitoris culture or ecology intersection. This is kind of a, this is yeah, exactly. So, what
0: thing. is the most reliable route to male orgasm for the human male?
2: Friction in a wet spot.
0: Intercourse. Thank you. <laughs> Love that we said that. Intercourse. What's the most unreliable route for a woman to have an orgasm? Same. Intercourse. Yeah. Debbie Herbernick found that less than 18% of women uh, were having orgasms from penetration alone. Um, and that's the statistic that I like to go by. No, that. that
2: that that's anatomy, not patriarchy. Or would you say the the ensuing practices that evolve the around the mission given?
0: Defining sex as intercourse, mm-hmm. the thing that gets men off most reliably. Mm-hmm. That's about Culture, yeah, why what, what what? Now, let's talk about the things that get women off. Right? Let's redefine sex as the things that get women off. Okay, so then it's not just intercourse, uh, then we have a much wider menu grinding, scissoring, oral, uh, vibrators, digital stimulation, making out right women have so these are things that help get women off but we've defined sex as intercourse and this is linked and intercourse is the most reliable route to male orgasm and this is linked to men out earning women and having more political power than well
2: well now hold tight i'm going to slow your roll right there but i True confession, I had to learn about scissoring from South God. Park. I was like, good luck. <laughs> All right. All right. So, 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 so let me set up this thought experiment. So, so I think I'm, I'm 100% tracking the idea that there's a wide variety of sexual experience. We've kind of seemingly zeroed in and almost fetishized sexual intercourse. But on the other hand, it is the super consequential one. It makes more babies. It makes people. So there is some element there where the but gravity we know that of that sexu- act, Yeah.
0: But we know right? that sexuality is is at least as much about social bonding and yeah. not probably 90 you know i'm going to go out on a limb and say most sex that people are having in the united states is is uh you know not to reproduce on a given night you oh, know yeah yeah in any, any metropole or community um so and primate
2: uh, grooming but we, we haven't even
0: talked about the reversal of roe but okay, I want to talk about, let's just finish up about yeah, the orgasm.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let me let me give you the thought experiment, right? Because he, several things. One is there was a Stanford business school study comparing Lyft and Uber, gender differences, right? Because there was all the stuff about glass ceilings and women's pay gap and 70 cents on the dollar for a man and all that kind of stuff. And the implication, and sometimes it was explicit, was there's basically a dickhead in the corner office who's keeping women down. Right, like that was the kind of digest narrative, right? There was, it was sort of patriarchy, misogyny, and and sexism that was responsible for that. You don't uh, need a guy uh, for, for that. that. You don't you, need yeah, a guy and you may that. not need a guy. But the interesting study was Uber and Lyft. And granted, there's all the disclaimers about you know biases of the programmers showing up in algorithms, but fundamentally they were gender blind. You know, like a ride pops up, someone clicks on it to use it. The drivers make their own choices in a relatively autonomous, you know, mostly free markety kind of thing. And they found that that not quite as strong as 70 70 to a dollar but it was you know 75 cents 80 cents there was still a substantial earnings gap between men and women as drivers on these rideshare apps blind right and and but what they found was three things they found that women opted not to drive as late they opted you know late into the nighttime. They opted not to drive as far from home, and they opted not to drive into sketchy, uh, sketchy areas. So you're like, oh, fascinating. So women, and presumably, and they did some sort of anecdotal questionnaires and follow ups, and and quite often the explanation was they were responsible for others. They were juggling caregiving roles for elders, for children.
0: I was about to say, too many of these analyses stop at the level of, and so women aren't working as hard and taking the risks, and so that's why they're not earning as much. No, the reason they're not earning as much is because, as Lyft and Uber drivers, is because we have made the world unsafe for women, right, Mm -hmm. and because we have made women primary caregivers, right, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and women are running the social calculus. And deciding, like women have been doing forever, and female hominids have been doing forever, of uh, you know balancing their own well-being with that of their offspring and potential offspring. So they're making yeah, exactly. that classic life history trade-off. Yep. And it's not about how women naturally are. It's about put women in a context where life is dangerous, and they will seem more heartbound, and they will seem like uh, they're not taking as many risks uh, mm-hmm. because. They're facultative strategists, and they're realizing that things uh, that they that they have to behave differently if they Mm -hmm. want to literally survive. Can we go back to the orgasm gap for one second? I loved our I loved our lift uh, uh, cul-de-sac that we did because it's so important because it gets to ecology. Uh, So let me just briefly say this thing about sexual pleasure and privilege and privilege is just another one of those words that we're not supposed to say and we think it means nothing. Okay. Uh, But let's talk about the orgasm gap and the fact that for every orgasm a straight woman is having a a straight man is having three. Now let's look at other places. How do lesbians do? When women are with women, intercourse is not the privileged way of having sex. Intercourse and sex are not synonymous. Anytime intercourse and sex are synonymous, you're going to see a hierarchy where male pleasure matters more than female pleasure. But did okay? but
2: didn't but didn't lesbian women rank below gay men, straight men?
0: Lesbian. Then they came in better Lesbi- than straight women. Yeah. The important metric for me is that lesbians barely have an orgasm gap, right? They're not privileging intercourse they're doing all the other things the people if you if you will pardon my language the women who get fucked in the orgasm gap are the women getting fucked, mm-hmm. right straight women and bisexual women so some people might think oh the orgasm gap what does it matter to me as an anthropologist uh, with a background in primatology and evolutionary biology the orgasm gap matters because it gives us a lens onto the everything gap and Mm -hmm. other forms of inequality uh between people who identify as men and people who identify as women uh, that are very real in our culture uh for all the ways that people would like to deny them when we look at the data including the orgasm gap we see Mm -hmm. who really uh does still have more power in the aggregate in our culture Mm -hmm. sex matters. Sex matters. Sex Sex tells us so, so very much. And I think to your point, Andrew, that you made really briefly, but I'm sorry that I called you that. I'm I'm sorry. I know your name is Jamie. I don't know who I just thought it was. It was was
2: probably from Huberman because we were just mentioning Andrew.
0: Yes, maybe that's it. Um, I loved the point, um, you know, that you made about the clitoris and how we had this great forgetting right? We knew about the clitoris uh, thanks to, for example, um, medieval um, midwives, right? There was a medieval midwife that I wrote about in Untrue, and she knew about the clitoris and how extensive it was, and she wrote about it in her uh, guide for other midwives, and she she said something about how like blood, it, it doth uh, stand up, you know, it doth become erect and make... Um, make sex delightful for women right so we knew about the human female clitoris and how important it was and how extensive it was it was mapped during the renaissance um and we we knew all of that and then there was this great forgetting oh
1: yeah
0: and and, and when i tell you jamie that i went to speak to a group of 125 whip smart women gynecologists in north carolina before COVID, I held up a model. Hold on, I held this up. And I said to a group of 125 women gynecologists and obstetricians, I said, could you tell me what this is? And uh, (laughs) it looks
2: like it looks like a prize from my cereal box.
0: It looks like a prize from your cereal box. Thank you. I love honest answers. And one, one gynecologist said, uh, and I'm not putting anybody down. These are super smart women. One gynecologist said, I think it's a mouth guard. And the other one said, is that a chicken foot? (laughs) Um, and the answer is no, this is, um, an anatomically, uh, accurate rendering of the uh, human female clitoris. And, and, how, did, and didn't
2: it take to like the mid-90s for that to actually yes?
0: Um, yes. So what I'm trying to say is we knew about it and then we forgot about it, right? It was, it was just the the great the, the great forgetting happened for all the uh reasons that we talked about, wage gap, gap in political participation, gap in education. Uh but there was a great forgetting of the clitoris. This mm. is um that nobody recognized this in a group of 125 gynecologists.
2: Yeah, well, we had, we had a, a lot
0: about how we prioritize female pleasure. This, you don't need to know about this if you're prioritizing intercourse. And by the way, love intercourse, fun, great, love it. But for most women, it's not the way we get off. But anyway, the great forgetting about this, uh, which motored so much of human, human evolution, this, I'm, hol- I'm holding up a a model um, of the human female clitoris, uh, since there's only audio here and yeah. showing it uh, to Jamie, but he's probably seen it already. But the fact that we are so unfamiliar with this, that it was not mapped, uh, that, you know, Helen O'Connell is an Australian uh, uh, urologist who mapped the human female clitoris, uh, really without any institutional support, uh, men, her male um, surgeons, Professors were saying, "Be very careful not to cut the nerve supply to the penis." That and she said, "Oh my God, that would be a catastrophe if men lost sexual sensation." How do I avoid cutting off the nerve supply to the clitoris? And what really is the clitoris? Uh, and they said, "Gee, we have no idea." How about you figure that out with no institutional support or no institutional funding? And I like to say good, luck,
2: it, good luck with that. Yeah. Just like
0: a woman, she said you're on and she did it and she figured it out and the great forgetting uh was 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 over again. Well, um, well here's but- here's
2: another level, right? Because we have a dear friend who's who's a body worker and was doing one of those cadaver workshops and specifically about fascia, and she was and she's very sex positive, part of kind of a poly community and in educator teacher in that space. And so she started rooting around on the pelvic floor and the connections of the fascia to the clitoris and basically wigged out the entire governing body and instruction. They were like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? This is too much. This is too far." And she found direct connection to the entire pelvic girdle, pelvic floor and the sliding surfaces of the fascia directly to the clitoral nerve and everything else. And and no one even the experts in that space had any idea about it. This was six Isn't months it ago. is
0: amazing? No, think about this. I like to say we mapped the human genome. Uh, we sent uh, a rover to Mars. Uh, we got those amazing pictures of the universe recently um, from the wave, the James Webb telescope. And yet we did not know again the anatomy of part of the human body yep. until the 1990s. Come on, don't tell me that forgetting and ignoring is not political.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, man, I mean I I always show slides of like Wilder Penfield's homunculus, you know, with the different side parts of the, the mouth and the hands and things that are like yes, where the yes. bendings are. People but their junk their movies. junk is their junk is little and, and the clitoris is entirely <laughs> absent, you know?
0: So- Yeah. And the clitoris is as big as the penis, right? It's just uh, on the inside. Women have erectile tissue like men do. Women wake up with morning wood or people clitoris havers wake up with morning wood. Um, We get hard when we're turned on. I always say to women, um, see if you can feel your clitoris all of it. There's part of it under your labia, there are trura that sort of wing back uh, towards your anus, then there's the clitoral hood obviously and the part of the clitoris that's visible to the human eye uh, called the glans clitoris. The clitoris includes the spongy uh, erectile tissue around a woman's urethra and also some spongy tissue back by her um, around her anus. Um, So It is an extensive pleasure center, and it is very significant to me as an anthropologist. Before I said pleasure is political, I will say it again. (laughs) Pleasure, what I mean by that is that pleasure is yoked to material conditions in a given ecology, Mm -hmm. including whether it is safe for women to feel and be sexual. Are they going to get killed? Are they going to get slut shamed? Are they going to feel guilty? Is it safe for women to be sexual? Is it safe for women? Uh, And is it and do women have enough power that men will prioritize female pleasure? Mm
2: Yeah. So not, it sounds like that almost feels like a riff in the same way that there's the conversation around structural racism has been risen to prominence and outside legal scholarly, scholarly studies in the last few years. Structural sexism is what I hear you describing fundamentally the relationship yeah, I mean, really, between-
0: I just base things in the worldwide ethnographic data and the data mm-hmm. that I see. And when I review um, uh, female well-being in different ecologies, ranked country by country, and mm-hmm. our country, the largest or second largest, economy in the world ranks 100th for female labor force participation uh, and female meaningful female political participation, I base a lot of my insights about female sexuality on those uh, fundamental mm-hmm. inequities that mm-hmm. we see. Um, nice. Yeah, I link all those things together. The pleasure gap is part of the everything gap. And yeah. uh, we're making we're making some progress, but then we have these huge setbacks, uh, like what happened with Roe, right? And yeah. I would say that all of sexual selection theory is attempts to control or coerce female sexuality and female counter strategies, right? Mm-hmm. So as we have Roe gutted, uh, so we have women taken to social media to share information about where to get abortion pills or um, uh, to support people, uh, women in whatever way they can to have sexual autonomy. And then we will see another counter strategy of coercion and control uh, for example, like uh, social media outlets sharing DMs, for example mm-hmm. um, of, of people of women uh, trying, uh to uh have access uh to abortion which is just women trying to uh have control of the reproduction so that is really all of sex sexual selection theory is that everything has been sort of um attempts to coerce and control um and then female counter strategies to get around those attempts to coerce and control and we're really seeing uh sexual selection theory happening in real time with what's happening uh with roe and yeah. what's happening in this country now it's a fascinating thing to look at and a disheartening thing to look at through the lens of anthropology and evolutionary biology for sure um but the yeah. lesson is that there will always be counter strategies
2: mm-hmm. well well let's actually i'd love to close with this so 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 on the one hand and and obviously the the current uh legal rulings those are those are real and present dangers to female autonomy so this is a a major thing and don't want to diminish that in the slightest although i would encourage folks if you're interested in really getting again a historical perspective one is understand the evangelical religious rights arguments against birth control When that was happening in the 60s and 70s because you have almost verbatim arguments and so then then you you can really establish a stronger link to the control what this is really about isn't the rights of the sacred unborn it's much more much more closely linked to controlling feminine sexuality and then even just the fact that 70s era roe v wade opposition was actually democratic chicago boston catholic right but it included Healthcare, early childhood ed, maternal care—it was much. It, it wasn't. It hadn't been hijacked by far right evangelicalism, and right. so it was.
0: It was more socially engaged uh, Catholicism. Uh, like yes. Jesuits and yes absolutely right? that. so now we've had this very big shift in the culture uh yes thank yeah. you for making this point about ecology it's
2: just so, so we important. know it's the same with the nra the nra was a fucking marksmanship and gun safety boy scout organization for decades and it wasn't until they started consolidating power in the mid to late 70s that they started getting increasingly aggro and drumming up first amendment rights which really came out of nowhere and are not part of the judicial or or cultural record in any way that we experience them today. So just anyway, learn your history, folks. It's always helpful. Um, But what I'd love to do is, is wave the magic wand because at the same time that this is happening, you know, in our culture, in the last decade, there's been this incredible blossoming of sexual permission, um, open relatedness, decrease in, or more to the point, embrace of a wild variety of genders, lifestyles, relational formats, all these things. So if we just wave the magic wand and say, actually, your book worked, Sex at Dawn worked, Mating in Captivity worked, right? Like, like they did the thing. And and yet there has also been what I find is a fascinating counter movement or backlash right and i'm sure you're familiar 100
0: with- let's go back to sexual selection theory you make such a good point you can see sexual selection theory happening on social media and then the backlash as sex positivity took hold right mm-hmm. as a as a as a Counter strategy to those evangelical traditions, for example, and as a counter strategy to plow agriculture starting twelve thousand mm-hmm. years ago, as sex positivity took hold in this digital ecology and was expressed.
2: Yes, but there, we're also we're, but we're also having sex strategy now. There, there are those counter kind of strategies and what I'd love to bring up and hear your thoughts on is actually women feminists from within the movement noticing things so I'm sure you tracked uh, Leah Fessler's Middlebury study on hookup culture and how she was like hey this hookup culture was supposed to be super empowering for all of us girls and now I'm doing this little you know campus-based ethnography and it turns out not and then um, Amiya Srinivasan, the the professor at Oxford the feminist who said you know famously she wrote in the New York Times she's written in several other places and, and had a book on the subject but basically said hey i started introducing the concept of pornography to my class and i expected my my you know 2020 2021 Students at Oxford to be like, you know, boo down with Andrea Dworkin, you know, and second wave feminism, and saying that it's bad and corruptible and disempowering for women. I expected them to be all super sex positive and like yay Pornhub, and that's not what happened at all. She said actually super
0: sex positive and say boo Pornhub for you know their stuff that they do with letting people upload whatever they want and ruining yes. the lives of young uh, of people uh, whose videos are on there without their consent. Okay, so Absolutely. here. Yeah, So uh, okay, so if I understand uh, the point you're making, which I really appreciate, every woman is not gonna be a sex positive feminist, right? And we see cultural shifts. And uh, so look, here's the larger point. Um, When we look, let's take the example of hookup culture. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm familiar with uh, several studies including the original one done in the 70s uh, at Florida State University, where uh, we were told that women, uh, young women like hooking up less than men do. And so young women are less sexual. Mm-hmm. There was a big design flaw in that study, which is that young women were afraid to hook up because they were afraid of getting murdered. They were afraid of getting an STI. They were afraid of getting pregnant. Uh, they were afraid of social stigma. So subsequent studies controlled for those variables and basically created um, a scenario in which the young woman was guaranteed that she would have an orgasm, guaranteed that it would be safe socially, sexually, and physically for her. And those young women were as likely as young men to say yes uh, to casual sex, right? So all these arguments about uh, kids like young women like sex less than young women do, or women are less sexual than men. I know this isn't what you were saying exactly. Uh, But yeah, I'm not surprised by the study about hookup culture because these girls aren't having orgasms. Only 4%, these young women, only 4% of women have an orgasm in a first time hookup. Why is that? It's not because female orgasm is more elusive. It's not because female women are complicated. It's not because women need to be in love. It's because we prioritize intercourse and we socialize women to shut up and not say, wait, I want to get off, do this, right? So anyway, to your point, we will see these shifts. Uh, We will see strategies and counter strategies uh, yeah, and I'm not surprised that we see reactions against sex positivity, even in places where we don't expect to see them. Um, but I am hopeful uh, that this overturning of Roe is going to really um, radicalize a generation of young people once they see that they can't have an abortion. <laughs> and and I'm hopeful um, that sex positivity uh, will just sort of grow Uh, to include messages about material conditions on the ground that make sex positivity necessary.
2: Mm. So in a nutshell, the anthropological is political.
0: (laughs) In, In a nutshell, if you're looking at sex, look at the ecology where sex is happening sex is never about some mystical way men and women naturally are is what we see as we dig further into data and look at newer science about sexuality sex is always about uh the intersection of biology and culture of desire and culture of the clitoris and culture of the penis and culture Uh, sex happens in an ecology and the more egalitarian the ecology the more pleasurable the sex is for
2: everyone Fantastic. And presumably the more equitable and just the society is if I if you flip your critique earlier critique on its head.
0: I would love to see a study of the most egalitarian cultures and rates of female orgasm therein. Mm-hmm. Because I strongly suspect that in egalitarian cultures. Uh, there will not be an orgasm gap because uh, forms, uh, ways of getting pleasure that uh, create female orgasm, will be just as prioritized as ways of getting pleasure that create male orgasm.
2: There we have it. Our, 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 the cure for our social woes. Well, Wednesday. Thank thank you for going long, and thank you for all of your thoughts. It's been it's been a delight to get to jam with you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.